Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia at 9.30 and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. We hope you'll be able to join us, but in the meantime, enjoy this recording of last week's message. You ever try to give someone a compliment and then it kind of backfires on you? You know, like you meant to say this thing and it just sort of came out the wrong way. I, I have way too many of those in my life that I've said over the years. For someone who's like a speaker for a living, you think I would be like smoother with my words when I'm talking to people, but I, I don't always get it right. I remember dating my wife, like I was trying to pay her a compliment when we were dating. I told her she looked like a stick of gum. Um, I've had people come to me like, what did you mean by that? I'm like, it's not even worth explaining. It's not, it's not... It just not great. It didn't, it didn't have the intended effect. You know, and you can see it on someone's face. You're like, I meant this as a good thing, and that's not how you're taking it right now. Uh, it's a problem. I, I told an employee once, what, what I was trying to tell the employee was, um, I'm really glad you're here and you're doing a great job. What I said was, we interviewed someone else and I wanted to hire the other person, but I'm glad we got you. <laughs> I thought that was really good. I thought I was really saying something there. And what they heard was, you were my second choice. And that's not what I was trying to communicate. I was trying to say, like, you're doing a really good job. And we're like, we made the right choice. It's you and whatever. Um, and, and, and it's frustrating because inevitably you, you, what happens is you, you say, like, um, well, I meant well, right? Like, that's what, what you'll say is, I meant well. I didn't say the right thing, but I meant well. And we do that with our words. We do that with our actions. Um, we buy gifts for people, right? Uh, you probably just went through this at, at Christmas. You buy a gift, and you mean well. You want to get the thing that is perfect for them. Um, but it's hard. It's a gamble, it's, it, it's, it's nerve-wracking, right? It's easier now that we have Amazon because people can just send you a link and go, this, this, exactly this is what I want. But for those of you who don't know and maybe you're too young to remember a world without Amazon, before that time, if you wanted to get someone a gift, they didn't send you a link to the thing and say, buy exactly this. It was like, hey, go to Kmart and in aisle three, there's this, and then they describe it, and then you try to go get it, and inevitably you got like the wrong color, and the, especially if you're buying clothes for someone, just ain't no way that's going to work. Like you got the wrong size, shape, color, and they're like never going to wear it, but they're trying to be like, oh, thank you for getting me this, these pants or whatever. Like it just doesn't work. It was, it was very stressful. And again, inevitably what you do is you go, well, I meant well. I tried. I was trying. My heart was in it. My actions were a little messed up, but I was trying to do the right thing. I was trying to get it right, and it was a, but it was a swing and a miss. And here's the reality, though, and this is, this is hard. The reality is um, if you keep swinging and missing, the relationship will die. And, and it'll die while you're sitting there going, oh, my heart was in it. And you'll say, I meant well. But eventually, you got to get it right. You got to get some hits. Because if, if you keep meaning well and missing, I'm going to be convinced that you don't actually mean well. If you say my heart was in it and you keep doing the wrong thing, I, I would be convinced that you're not trying. You're not actually trying to do, to do the thing. Um, and the, it's going to lead to a relationship death. Um, in, in the long run, if your heart is not in the right place. Now, this is not a new thing. This has been a human condition from the beginning of time. Um, we have always struggled with making our hearts line up with our hands and our feet, or to say it another way, getting our beliefs to line up with our actions. 
We struggle with that. We've had a hard time in the history of history getting those things to line up. I say one thing and I believe one thing, but I do another thing. What do we call in our society, what is the word we use if someone believes one thing but does something different? Hypocrite, right? Hypocrite. Um, interestingly, you may not recognize this, but the, the reason we call people hypocrites in that situation is because that's what Jesus called them. Jesus was unique in the ancient world for using that phrase to describe people. And in his day, a hypocrite was a stage actor. That's what you would call, we would call them actors or thespians or something like that. In that day, they were called hypocrites. Hypocrites were people who wore masks on stage to pretend to be someone else. And Jesus took that idea that everyone was familiar with and he, and he referred to regular people and said, you're hypocrites, you are stage actors, you are playing at life, you are pretending to be something you're not. Now we have such a revulsion to hypocrisy in our culture, it's like the sin you can't have in America. We're like, ugh, hip- hypocrisy, I hate the hypocrisy of this, this, and this. We, we don't like that when people profess one thing and they act in a different way. And a lot of times what we think is that the church is full of hypocrites. And if you're new to church, maybe today's your first day, or maybe you haven't been in church in a long time, or maybe you stayed away from church precisely because it's full of hypocrites, I have some news for you today. It is. We're totally full of hypocrites here. I just wanted you to know that right up front. Starting with me and everyone else, uh, there's, a, there's, there's some disconnect at times between what people say and what they, what they actually do. Here's the other thing that's true. We don't corner the market on hypocrisy. It's actually occurring all over society in all, all the places. This is the human condition. This is the way we actually all are. So what do we do about it? Usually to make our behaviors line up with our hearts or our our actions line up with our motives, um, we try some version of behavior modification. I'll slap my wrists, I'll stop doing this, I'll start doing this. We change our behaviors with the hope that if we will change our behaviors, it will change our hearts and it'll change our will, it'll change our motives. And that rarely um, ever works. In fact, we build laws around those kind of things. When we think about the way our laws work in the society, we say, all right, on the interstate, you can't drive faster than 70 miles an hour. It's a speed limit. It, you can drive, not, if, if you go out and you drive the speed limit, they have changed your behavior. They did not change your heart, though. You may still want to drive really fast, but you don't, you're like, well, I guess I shouldn't because there's a law, right? It's the same thing with, with laws all over the place. Laws are not designed to change hearts. They're just designed to modify behavior in the short term. Same thing with guns. We go like, um, hey, you can't buy a gun if this, 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 these conditions are in place. And we, and we put laws around and say, you can have this, you can't have this around guns. That doesn't change your heart if you want to kill someone. That, that's not going to change just because there's laws around it. I mean, we need to have laws and we have these conversations. Um, but we need to look at, at, at that because what we do, what we're very good at society is making laws, but what we're not good at is, is looking at the, the heart of the thing and, and really digging down into the roots. Henry David Thoreau said, there are a thousand hacking at the branches of evil to one who is striking at the root. And one of the reasons I really appreciate Jesus' teaching is that when Jesus speaks, he goes to the heart. He goes to the root of the thing. He's not hacking at the branches. And I want us to look at maybe his most famous teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if you'd call it a sermon. It's a speech. It's a talk. He, he delivers on a hillside near the Sea of Galilee in the first century. And he delivers it to his disciples who are sitting near him and then the thousands that are sort of gathered around. And they hear him talk about 
Um, but, and he really gets into the roots of our, of our condition as, as people. And we're going to cover a chunk of it today, and I'm just going to let you know up front, it's heavy. There's some, there's some hard things in here. This is going to step on some toes. Um, but we've we got to get into what, he, what, he's, what he's pointing us to. Um, we started it last week. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount opens up with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the peacemakers. And we looked at that and we said, look, what Jesus is doing is taking people who feel like junk, who feel terrible, who feel broken and bored and frustrated and, and who are having a hard time. And he looks at all of those people and he said, actually, God is going to bless you or God has blessing for you. And he takes people who feel downcast and downtrodden and elevates them and says, God is blessing you. And if you're one of the first people to hear him say that, it sounds like incredibly good news. You're a poor farmer or, or, or fisherman or something like that in that culture and you feel like you're insignificant in the world and Jesus comes along and says actually God sees you he knows you and he loves you and you're extremely encouraged by that but the second thing you might have thought if you were a Jew hearing Jesus say that in the first century um, you might have had this weird idea because um, because when Jesus says God loves you and he's accepting you the next question you might ask as a Jew is well yeah but wait don't I have to still follow all the rules you see, there were laws for Jews to follow in the, in the ancient world, 613 laws in the Old Testament. Now, you've heard of some of them, the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, that kind of stuff, right? Okay, I know those. There's 603 more in addition to the thou shalt that you've heard of, um, and those 603 are, are things like don't eat shellfish, um, when you go to the bathroom, make sure you don't do that in the middle of the camp where everybody is, but you've got to go outside the camp. Like for people who have never camped before... That's good news. That's, that's the helpful information. Like they, so they've got all these laws ar- around behavior, and the Jews in Jesus' day are used to, I need to follow all the rules. And if I follow all the rules, I will make God happy. God will be pleased with me, and I will be blessed. And Jesus comes along and goes, God is happy with you. And people are sitting there going, but wait, don't I have to follow all the rules? Are you actually trying to get rid of all the rules? That would have been the next question in people's mind. Now, that may not be your question, is if I tell you God loves you and, he's, and you're blessed and all these sorts of things, but maybe the way you would say it is the way I remember having a conversation with one of my kids at bedtime years ago, and he said to me, um, Dad, if God loves us like we are, as we are, then why do I have to do what he says, or why do I have to like, follow any of the rules or the commandments or any of that kind of stuff? Um, and, and that makes sense, because what we tell kids is, you do good and you will receive a reward. We dangle the carrot, right? We go, get good grades, I'll buy you ice cream. Do well at this and I'll be happy with you. We, we make that connection for kids. And so you apply that to God and go, well, I guess if I do the things that God wants me to do, then he will be happy with me. And the whole thing is reversed. It's like, no, God is happy with you and he loves you. Now go out and do good things. That's, that's a challenging idea. And so for the original crowd who heard Jesus talk, they're sitting there going, are you going to like, are you like, scrapping all the rules then? Like you just said God loves us, so what does that mean about all the rules we're trying to keep? And so Jesus comes to this part here in in his teaching, and honestly, when I first read this years ago, when I first read this part of the Sermon on the Mount, this is one of the parts I kind of skipped over. Like I'd read it and I'd be like, yeah, blah, 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 I don't know what he's talking about, let's get into the other stuff. But now in reading it, I think this is actually the central like thesis statement of his whole talk. So this is, really, this is really key. Listen to what he says. Matthew chapter 5, we'll start with verse 17. We'll put it up on the screen. He says, 
Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Because that's what they're all thinking. They're like, are you getting rid of this whole thing? He goes, no, no, I, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's talking about what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, to, to be in God's kingdom in this countercultural different thing that we're living in amongst the larger political and civil government. How do we be people in, in God's kingdom? And he says, I didn't come to throw away all the laws that you knew from before. I came to fulfill them. Now, the word fulfill, the way rabbis would use it in that day, to fulfill the law means that you, um, it, it means that you are properly interpreting the Torah, those ancient laws from the Old Testament, and you're interpreting them in a way that people can actually uh, obey them the way God intended to them. So in a sense... Jesus is pointing not just to the truth of the laws, he's pointing to the heart of the law. We might make a distinction in our culture, you would say like the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. Well, Jesus is saying, yes, the letter of the law, sure, do that, but you also need to get at the heart of the thing or the spirit of the thing to to really understand what God is, is calling us to. So he said, no, I'm here to fulfill that. I'm I'm for it. The opposite of fulfilling the law would be to abolish the law or nullify it or interpret it in a way as to mislead other people. And so Jesus gives us this fuller understanding of of what the laws are and what the rules are in our relationship with each other and with God. The NIV translation does a good thing with verse 18. I want to read it to you. Listen to the way it says that same verse. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear... Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. The, the, the smallest letter in Hebrew is the letter Yod, and to us it would look like a comma. It's just a little thing. Or if you're talking about the least stroke of a pen, if you're writing out a letter and you accident, if you wrote out a capital E and you accidentally left off one of the, the sort of the horizontal lines, you've kind of messed up your E, right? And Jesus is saying, all of it is good. Like we're not gonna we're not gonna get rid of all that stuff. It it all matters, and and it's part of um, knowing God and following Him. Like these laws are given for our good, um, and as long as we are here together on Earth, um, we need to to pay attention to them and not just understand the the letter of them, but the the spirit of them as well. It's not like He was coming along saying, "Hey, you guys, remember Thou shall not murder." it's cool now, murder whoever you want, like I'm abolishing all that. He's like, no, I'm not doing that. It's th- that stuff still matters, but they're going to need to be understood in a deeper way. Look at again at verse 20, the end of this section. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That would have landed on them in a very heavy way. Like your righteousness, your doing what is right, doing good, being a good person, that kind of thing. Think of that concept. Jesus says, unless you're better than the scribes and the Pharisees. These are the most religious people of the day. Put it in modern context. Think of the most religious person you know. Like someone who like, if they're Catholic, they're in mass every morning right? If the, and, and twice on the holidays and whatever, like they're just there all the time or, or maybe um, they just pray a lot or they're just really observant of culture and, and, and their, their religious traditions and all these things. Think of someone like that 
and then like maybe double it, and then you're getting at the scribes and the Pharisees. These people would pray three times a day. They would tithe their money. They would give a percentage away, and they, they were you know, really uh, showy about some of it, but they're, they're also, people would know them as like, oh, those are like the really holy people. And Jesus goes, look, you're going to have to do better than that. And the crowd, or regular people, fishermen, and just kind of, you know, Joe Sixpack or whatever, they're sitting there going like, yeah, I can't do that. Like, I, that's too much. Like, I can't be holier than those holy people. Um, what, do you, what do you mean? And so Jesus is going to explain in the next chunk of verses, we'll look at some of them, He's going to explain what he means about how we can be uh, more righteous than these really religious people and why it matters. Um, Verse 21, he says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So that's Ten Commandments. Don't kill people. Don't murder. And and Jesus acknowledges that. Hey, you've heard this, right? Everybody know that one? Everyone in the crowd's like, yep, got it. And it's one of those, it's, it's good he starts with that one because it's one of those that most people can check off the list. Hey, you know how you shouldn't murder? And everybody's like, yeah, should not murder. I have never done that. I am in. Like, this is what God wants me to do. He wants me to not kill people. But is that a really high moral bar? Like, not killing people? Like, I know people kill people, and I I know that, that, and and I know, like, you feel like if you haven't had your coffee, you're going to kill someone. And so you're like, if I, you know, it's it's a win today that I didn't kill anybody. But is it a win that you don't kill people? Is it that high of a bar? He goes, okay, you've heard this. Now he goes to the heart of the thing. Verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you, will be, you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Okay, so the law says don't kill. The, the letter of the law says don't kill. But the spirit of the thing has to do with your anger. Because Jesus knows unchecked anger will destroy lives, destroy yours, destroy people around you. There's something there, right? I think about this when you hear about someone killing someone, murder and on, on a large scale or a small scale. Whenever there's, someone takes life violently, um, there's always a predictable conversation that happens around gun violence or those sort of things. And, and, and what we end up talking about are things like um, gun laws and how do we put a boundaries around that, so that uh, access to guns. And then there's usually a, a, talk, a conversation around mental illness and, you know, that, that sort of thing. And I get that. And from policy level, you got to have those conversations and, and talk about what's sensible and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the thing I often think about when I hear about violence, um, I, I, I always think, um, why are you so angry? Why is, why is someone so angry that they, that they do this? And what are they angry about? And it turns out that's actually an ancient question. Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, and it's written about in the book of Genesis. And they sin, they mess up, they fall. Um, and God asks them a question. It's the first question God asks of humanity in the Bible. When they, when they sin, they hide from God, and God says, why are you hiding? Like, where did you go? And they, they deal with that. And then God removes them from the Garden of Eden, and they leave. And then they end up having children, Cain, Abel, Seth, and some, some kids. And so um, in Genesis 4, you see God asking another question. It's the second question he asks. Genesis 4, um, uh, Cain gives an offering to God, and God says, what are you doing? Like, this is not good. And Cain is upset. And God says to Cain, 
Why are you angry? And the next thing Cain does is goes and kills his brother. He murders him. You see, the root of murder is anger. Why are you so angry? And so if we're going to get to the the heart of the thing, not just the letter of the law, we have to go beyond murder. Because there's probably no one, no one, maybe someone, I don't know, but probably no one in here has murdered anyone or really gotten that close. But unchecked anger is is where it's at. There's something, there's something there that we need to look at and, and, and notice. Um, he doesn't just stop there. He goes through a bunch of different examples of this. Look at verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So you've heard it said, hey guys, you know the rules. You've heard this one, don't commit adultery. And again, people... This is a fairly easy one to go. Yep, check. I haven't committed adultery. I have not cheated on my spouse. Done. Got it. Jewish men and women would understand that in the first century. Yeah, let's, well, we shouldn't be doing that. Okay, got it. And Jesus doesn't let us off that hook. He goes, no, no, the problem is that you're cultivating lust in your heart, in your eyes, in your mind. Like, the problem with adultery starts way before in, in, in what you're looking at and what you're focusing on and what you allow yourself to be... Um, to, to, to where you allow your mind to go. It's cultivating lust in your heart. And maybe the reason you haven't committed adultery is honestly because you lack the opportunity to do so, not because you don't want to do it. I, 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 I talked to a friend. I, I, I've had several people that I know over the years who have cheated on their spouse. And um, that's a hard conversation. You know, you, you, you talk and you, you want to be uh, helpful, but you're also like, man, what, like, what were you thinking? Like, why would you do this? Um, and just having those conversations with people and you start to kind of get a, a window to the soul of, uh, of where people are at and, and why. And, and one guy, I remember talking to him, and this was someone who, who would swear up and down, like, no, adultery is wrong. I would never do that. And yet he did. Um, and, and he took the blame for it. He wasn't like, it's someone else's fault. But, but really, it, in, in one of the things that happened with him is that an, an opportunity showed up in his hotel room. Like it just showed up and said, hey, let's, let's do this. And he took the opportunity. And uh, that's not excusing anything at, at all. Um, but, but there's something there. There's something unchecked that happened long before that moment. Um, whether it was flirting or whatever it was, there's things that happened long before that moment that led to that moment. Um, and, and, I, and, I, and that's where we need to notice things. We need to notice them at a, at a far different level than just, did I commit adultery or not? And we need to notice what we let our heart and minds focus on. Um, now, that might hit close to home for some of us, um, that you've been there, or it's something you're wrestling with right now. Um, We've we got to notice this. Are we cultivating lust in our hearts? Um, we have to strike at the root, not the branches. There's a lot more to say about that one. Um, we won't do it now. We can do it another time, but uh, let, let's keep moving on. Look at what he says next. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. 
This one's a little weird. There's some cultural things to unpack here. But people in that day would say, I swear, or I take an oath, or I promise. And they would swear by something. In our culture, we, you know, years past, you'd say, I swear on a stack of Bible, or I swear on my mother's grave, or whatever. They would say, I swear by heaven, I swear by Jerusalem, I swear by my head, or whatever. And Jesus says, yeah, don't do that, because when you're doing that kind of thing, you're manipulating. You're trying to verbally manipulate. You're basically saying, my word is not good enough on its own. I'm going to have to give you a little extra here so that you'll actually believe me. And he says, instead of that, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you say, yes, I'm going to do a thing, then do it. If you say, no, I'm not going to do it, then don't do it. That simple. Keep it there and don't try to manipulate other people and coerce them. And I think there's so much wisdom to this. How would the world change if we did just that? How would your relationships change? Not just how you relate to other people, but even how you think about yourself. If my yes was yes and my no was no consistently, I would trust myself. I would be like, okay, I'm, I'm trustworthy and I do what I say I'm going to do. And other people would see me that way as well. And, and how would that change the fabric of relationships that we're all in if, if we were more trustworthy people? That's really... Um, powerful stuff. Now, we could go on. There's, there's more of these. Um, I, I, I want to put them all up on like a table or a chart, and you can just kind of look at this. Um, here's the situation. Jesus is going to go through all these. I'm not going to go through all of them. I just did a couple of them. Uh, there's an old righteousness. Here's what it is by the law. Here's the things to do, letter of the law. And then the new righteousness, what he's pointing us to is, hey, people who are in my kingdom, you do things differently. And he goes through divorce. He goes through the idea of when someone does you wrong or when they're your enemy, you know, if someone injures you in, in their culture, they'd be like, if they injure you, you injure them back in the same way, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And Jesus goes, no, that isn't it. You're going to love and pray for the person who injures you or, or who is your enemy. That's the only way that things are going to change. And we think that is crazy. Who, who prays for their enemies? And Jesus goes, my kingdom people will do that. They're going to live this out differently. And you might look at that list and see these things and listen to what Jesus is saying. And I think our response is, this whole series, is for real? For real, Jesus, this is what you want me to do? You want me to love enemies? You want me to not even look at a woman lustfully? You want me to like check my anger? You want me to not make promises? And uh, like, this is really challenging stuff. I'm, and, and it's overwhelming. You might sit here and go like, I don't think I'm ever going to get that right. I don't think I can do it. And I understand that because I feel the weight of it as well. So let me give you a couple things that I've found to be helpful, uh, and hopefully these will help you too. Let me give you sort of the why we would want to do this and a bit of the how. Um, on the why point, um, I think, and let me just aim this comment here at followers of Jesus specifically. There is a big difference between doing something because... Um, you, you, uh, of saying like, I will do this and then God will do for me. So it's very transactional. If I do right, God will then be pleased with me. It's the kid wanting ice cream, right? I'll get good grades, then I'll get ice cream. Take that and point it towards God. And that is what most world religions and philosophical systems do. It's karma. It's other ways of talking about it. We just go, if I do enough good things and my good things outweigh the bad things, then I'm good. That's uh, you see that kind of system all over the world kind of infecting itself in, into all sorts of religious ideas. And Jesus comes along and right up front says, no, no, you're good, now go do right things. 
And just the reordering of that is a game changer because when God pronounces you good, you walk as in, in the identity of I am good and God loves me and I am treasured his possession. I am with him. Now I'm going to go, go do well. I'm not doing well to earn his love. I already have it. I'm doing well because I am loved by him. That's a powerful difference, and that is at the heart of what Jesus is driving us towards. Is not, here's a new set of things for you to go do, but it's, no, kingdom people in a relationship with God, this is, this is what it will look like when it flows out of you. You're going to start acting differently and, and, and believing differently, and it's going to change your, your heart and your desires. So that's my comment aimed at Christians. If you're not a Christian in this room, and I wouldn't assume everybody is, if you're not a Christian, maybe you're new to faith, maybe you're agnostic, atheist, or some, something else, and you're like, eh, I don't know, and you're sitting here listening to all this Jesus talk, and you're going, I don't know if I believe in him, this, that, I'm not sure I'm in on any of this. Let me just say this to you. Even if you don't believe any of this, even if you said, like, I don't even know that I could trust that Jesus actually said that thousands of years ago, and you're very skeptical about that, Okay, but it's written down from a very ancient source. There are manuscripts of this that go back a couple thousand years. So, so it is an ancient text. And even if you don't believe the Jesus part of it, at least look at it because I think you should live the way Jesus is calling you to live anyway, whether you believe in the heart behind it or not. Because to be very pragmatic about it, um, it's just a better way to live. Like being the kind of person where your yes is yes and your no is no, that's good for you, um, if not for the other people around you. Um, not uh, being the kind of person who, who keeps their unchecked anger. Like unchecked anger is dis- destroying relationships. And if, you, and if you were able to deal with that, that's better for you and for people who know you and love you. Uh, lust, dealing with that, if, if you're able to, to work on that, um, it's, it's going to be better for you and for the people who know you, because that stuff wrecks relationships. Um, we have, in this country, said pornography. We've acted like that's a personal, yeah, it's a personal choice and whatever people want to do in their private lives and if it's something they enjoy, whatever. Um, and I understand that, why we've said that, but there's so many people now saying, not, not even from a religious point of view, from a non-religious point of view as well, who are saying, no, pornography is a public health crisis that we're having because we're seeing it show up in all sorts of the ways men and women relate and, and harassment and um, just with teenagers and just all, like it's a public health crisis that we're dealing with. Um, and so there's a lot of wisdom in what Jesus is saying because he knows the human heart. And so even if you don't believe in Jesus, you should try living the way he's pushing you towards. You should try the forgiveness that he calls you to because you hating your enemy is not making you any better. It's not helping you. It just makes you bitter. So why not do what he says and love your enemies? Um, I think if you really want to be transformed, then, then we have to look at things on the level that Jesus pointed us to if you really want to grow. You can't just duct tape apples to a tree and call it an apple tree. You have to go to the root of the thing and say, what is the fruit that's actually being produced here? So how do you, how do you get at your own heart? Um, for me, just quick things and then we're done. Uh, you have to check your motives. You have to notice your motives. Uh, for me, one of the things I, I try to pay attention to is when I use the words, I have to or I should. Um, a lot of times when we say I have to or I should, what we mean is there is some force outside of me that is forcing me into this decision. And notice what happens when I say I have to or I should. I don't have to tell you what I want to do. 
my heart doesn't matter, right? As long as I'm doing what I have to do or I should do, what I want to do is off the table. And the problem is, as we do what we have to do or we should do, and we, we can continue to go there and not ever check in on our own hearts, not ever notice what we really want and what's really going on there. And so I try to notice in a day, where am I saying that? Where am I hiding behind? Well, I just have to go do this thing. And sort of avoiding my own heart. Um, the other thing I do with that is, is to journal. I, I write and um, when I, when I in, in the morning when I read a lot of uh, TJ mentioned Core 52, we're reading the scriptures together, and sometime during that time, I will, um, I have a, a, a sort of a journal book that I, that I keep, uh, I will notice, hey, here's some things that I felt yesterday. Let me check in on what, what emotions I was going through. Let me, let, let me notice this stuff, because I want to pay attention to my heart, and I don't want to ignore it and stuff it for weeks and weeks and weeks, which is what we typically do, but I want to check in on that pretty regularly and go like, hey, what's going on in me? Um, not just physically or whatever, but like emotionally and spiritually, what's, what's happening. So I, I find that journaling or writing stuff down helps. Um, now, I just sat here and told you about journaling. I told you about, um, you know, checking in your heart and motives and all that kind of stuff. And maybe the way that sounds to you is like when you go to the dentist and they tell you you need to floss. And you're like, oh, Really? <laughs> Like, do I have to do that? That's annoying. Um, and I get it. Uh, but even before Jesus' day, the, the, the Greeks had a, a, a saying, the unexamined life is not worth living. And so what Jesus calls us to is to examine our hearts. Because in the heart, this is where all this stuff's really happening. Um, evil is not happening out there in the world. It's happening in us. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. It, so whatever bad is out there in the world, it's, it's the war is being fought in, inside of us. Um, and Jesus understood that, and that's why he speaks to it. And this can seem overwhelming, and it can sound like, oh man, there's no way I can't lust. There's no way I can't uh, still be very angry. There's no way I can do the things that Jesus is calling me to do. But let me encourage you with this. When Jesus said this, he was saying it to regular people. This was not meant for the super religious to be more religious. This was meant for normal people to be able to pick this up and do it. So it's intended to actually be practical and doable for the average person. Is it challenging? Yeah, the good stuff is, right? But it's actually doable. So let me encourage you that we're on this journey together and we can walk this road and we're going we're, we're gonna to go uh, where he's calling us. Um, and, and if you feel like, oh, this is overwhelming, that's okay. Um, Jesus is with you, and he believes you can, you can do this. And, and I think you can truly be transformed uh, through applying what he's saying. Let's pray. God, thank you for your son, for how he taught this, and what it means for us. And God, may we be people who are transformed by the life that he's advocating. May we be people who do the hard work of looking at the heart and don't just skim along the surface of life. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.